Good morning. Uh, the scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 18. Continuing our study of Philippians. It's uh, 1161 in the Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Or your own Bible. It will be a different page number. Now I want, to, now I want you to know, brothers, that what I have... What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. And please be seated. We have been looking at the book of Philippians, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young congregation in the ancient city of Philippi to thank them and to instruct them regarding what he calls their partnership in the gospel. And by gospel we mean, and Paul means, the good news of what God has done to accomplish his purposes and to deal with the problem of our sin and our rebellion by sending his eternal son, Jesus Christ. It's what God has done. So unlike all humanity, Jesus lived a perfect life of communion and obedience to his Father. He did what you and I were supposed to do, but couldn't do or wouldn't do because of our sin and our rebellion. And so Christ not only lived that life in our place, he also died the death that we deserve to die because of our rebellion, because of our sin, so that God might deal with our sin, rescue us from it, and restore us to himself, to restore us to his purposes, his kingdom, having forgiven us, bringing us into a new community, the people of God, with a new purpose, a new mission and that's if we put our trust in him. So that whole message that Paul was preaching was a message not to try harder for Jesus, not to try harder for God and clean up your life and put things back together in your own strength, but to trust your life fully to what Christ has done. That's the gospel message, and that is the partnership in that message that Paul is talking about in Philippians. So he's writing to a congregation that's bound together by their faith in Jesus, in community, and also for the faith of Jesus, for mission, for its advance. And he's calling them to let this good news, this grace of God through Jesus and the Spirit, shape their personal lives, shape their relationships, so they're walking with joyful, humble unity, and to also let that gospel then fuel their passion and love and service for others, especially by proclaiming the message of Jesus to their neighbors, to the nations. 
That's Paul's aim in this book, to talk about this thing called partnership in the gospel. And in the first part of chapter 1 that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, Paul prayed to thank God for the partnership that already existed and also to ask God to continue growing that communion, that fellowship in the gospel by keeping them centered on the gospel itself, on Jesus and what he's done. And now in verse 12, Paul is going to begin to give kind of a personal update of sorts. So this church has been partnered with him in his ministry. He is one of their missionaries, if you will. Paul, having been uh, sent in some ways or supported by this church. And so he wants to let them know how things have been going, especially since they know that he's been put into prison because he's been preaching Christ. We're not sure if it's in Rome or in Ephesus, but uh, Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. Now, that looks like a pretty large problem. You know, as one commentator notes, for a traveling apostle to be put in prison must have seemed like a concert pianist having his hands tied behind his back. You know, how can he possibly continue the work he's been called to do? In fact, Paul faces several layers of trouble and suffering in his present gospel ministry, as we're going to see. Not only is he confined in prison, he's also become the target of a growing competition among fellow ministers of the gospel. People thinking they can take advantage of Paul and his imprisonment and advance their own position in the church. Meanwhile, it looks and feels very much like Paul is losing here. He's losing outside the church and inside. And nobody likes losing. It's hard to be joyful and thankful and unified with one another, all the things Paul is calling us to from this book, when we're losing. So how do we make sense of opposition and setbacks? in our service for Christ, both individually and then corporately as a whole, as a congregation. What happens when our words are dismissed as irrelevant or just goofy? Uh, when we're told that, I don't want you talking to your brother about that anymore, or your coworkers. What happens when our ministries are sabotaged through political motions or slander campaigns, when we put a whole lot of energy and money into trying to reach a particular area or need only to be completely denied access, what do we do with that? What's going on? Did the enemy just win? Are we losing the battle when those things happen? To frame it with the words of Luther's great hymn that we just sang, is our striving, in fact, losing? That's the question Paul deals with in this passage in Philippians 1, 12 through 18, as he begins to discuss the ironic joy of gospel partnership. The ironic joy of gospel partnership. So go ahead and turn back to verse 12 in chapter 1 of Philippians. If you don't have your Bibles open, go ahead and open them back up. That's page 1161 in the, the Bible in the rack in front of you. And let's pray together as we get ready to look more closely into this word. Lord, we are your servants. We are 
your people who don't deserve your love, don't deserve your grace, but because of who Christ is and what he's done, we are able to know you, we're able to rejoice in you, and we're able to serve you. And Lord, we all recognize that sometimes this world seems to get in the way. Sometimes our own hearts get in the way. Sometimes it feels like no matter how hard we try, we're spinning our wheels. And so I ask that you would meet us this morning in your word, by your spirit, to open our eyes and to help us make sense of this struggle, to help us know how to think about it and how to respond to it in such a way that makes much of you. So that's our prayer, God, and we ask that you would be with us and and bless our time in your word as we're gathered together. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is giving an update here, but this update has, is far more than just kind of trying to bring the church up to speed. So it's not just information, you know, the, the monthly newsletter, if you will. He is speaking directly to the question and the temptation that we've just raised. To think that, the su- that suffering for the gospel means defeat. That's the temptation. To think that opposition and setbacks, whether they arise from outside the church or sadly from within, are somehow getting in the way of fruitful gospel ministry, and so we should despair. That's the temptation, and he's speaking to that. And his point is simply this. Suffering for the gospel is not losing. It's not losing. Rather, God is at work in our proclamation of Jesus in all circumstances, whether we planned on them or not, to make much of Christ in us and through us. So God is at work through our proclamation of Jesus in all circumstances to make much of Christ in us and through us. It is not losing to face opposition, as though our mission can be confined by the world's persecution or as though we're in some sort of competition with each other for a bigger and broader hearing. Gospel partnership doesn't work that way because the gospel doesn't work that way. So how does it work? What happens to our partnership in the gospel in the face of opposition? Well, Paul addresses that question in two parts here with specific reference to his own circumstances of prison. First, he clarifies the effect that his suffering has actually had in verses 12 through 14. And then he clarifies why he remains joyful in their partnership despite opposition from fellow Christians. And that's in verses 15 to 18. So first, the fruit of Paul's imprisonment in verses 12 through 14. What has God actually done through the suffering? Well, in verse 12, Paul states in no uncertain terms that contrary to everything we would expect when we hear of somebody being imprisoned for the gospel, when they've been sent to go do a job, contrary to our expectations, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's a pretty big claim. So you're saying even though you're not able to do what you've been sent to do, you've been shut up from public influence and unable to preach 
in the synagogues or the marketplaces that somehow the gospel's still advancing? That people are hearing the message and coming and giving their lives to Christ? How? How is the gospel advancing when you're still in prison, when you're suffering? Two ways that Paul says it's bearing fruit because of, not in spite of, but because of his suffering. Two ways. First in verse 13. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So you can try and stop Paul from speaking in the marketplace about Jesus by throwing him in prison, but guess what happens? Now the whole prison knows. Now the whole Caesar's entire imperial, imperial guard, the praetorium, which some historians suggest reached 9,000 men at its fullest strength, that whole imperial guard had become aware of the reason for Paul's imprisonment. So as different guards took their turn being chained to Paul on guard duty, he was given, to use a gratuitous pun, a captive audience. Do you like that? I worked hard on that one. And as Paul told each of these guards the reason for his imprisonment, that the true king of the universe was the God of heaven, not Caesar, and that all humanity had committed treason against this one true king, but yet how he loved humanity so much he sent his eternal son, Israel's Messiah, who gave his life to rescue us from our sin and rebellion and reclaim us for God's kingdom, the greatest kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever and ever, and who proved his rule and authority and victory by rising from the dead. So as Paul explained this gospel message to each guard chained to his side, you know, word began to spread throughout the entire guard as they discussed these ideas. You, have you guarded that? Yeah, I guarded. You know, you hear what he said? Word had spread not only throughout the whole prison, but beyond the prison to what Paul calls everyone else, such that in Paul's closing greeting to this letter to the Philippians, he says in chapter 4, verse 22, all the saints send you greetings, the saints, for, uh, the, the believers in Christ, wherever Paul's writing from, all of them send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So from the dungeon to the palace, the gospel was advancing even while Paul was in chains. You cannot confine the gospel. Now, the second way that the gospel was bearing fruit because of Paul's suffering is seen in verse 14. He says, Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So again, this is the opposite of what we would expect. So rather than fleeing and concealing their beliefs, hiding from the Roman Empire, as no doubt the Roman Empire hoped would happen when they persecuted one of their leaders, instead of that, the believers who knew Paul were encouraged by what they saw. His faithful perseverance, God's faithfulness to work through his suffering, such that they were moved to be even bolder in their proclamation of Christ. We see a modern example of this in men like Jim Elliot, who once said, 
He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, Eliot tasted the truth of that statement when he met the end of an Alka spear some 55 years ago in the jungles of Ecuador, along with four other men, most of whom from Wheaton College in Illinois. And when they lost their lives for the sake of the gospel, what happened? Did people retreat from that tribe? Did people give up their aspirations toward missions? Now, in the decades that followed, Wheaton College saw a boon in global missions. Elliot's own wife, Elizabeth, took her daughter, Valerie, back to the very tribe that killed her husband, along with other family members of murdered missionaries, and they saw the conversion of the tribe to Jesus. Is our gospel, is our, is our striving losing? This is part of the ironic joy of gospel partnership. This is what those in Iran do not understand in their present persecution of Pastor Yosef Nadarkhani, who's been facing execution for converting from Islam to Jesus. One pastor tweeted this week, Dear Iran, it's called the Gospel Dilemma. Execute Pastor Nadarkhani? More Jesus. Let him live? More Jesus. You can't kill eternal life. You cannot confine the gospel. And here's why. Because God is greater than this world. And because partnership in the gospel means saying no to self and yes to Jesus. We said earlier nobody likes to lose. Why is that? You know, why don't we like to lose? What is it that summons the inner toddler in us all that just wants to take the Monopoly board game and fling it on the floor right before the other person wins? You know, or, or that makes us quit the video game when we still have one life left so we can't say that we really lost it? Or stop taking score on the seventh hole? You know, what is that? Why don't we like to lose? There's a simple reason. We love self too much. We love self. And when self, when me, my wants, my needs, my desires, when I am the center of my world, then the idea of losing anything sounds just foolish. And so at the first sign of defeat, we retreat into a self-protection or we attack in self-promotion. We do what we expect the people to have done when they saw Paul being persecuted the way that he was. But that's not what they did. Why not? Why not? Because they were more in love with Jesus than self. They had already lost their life in this world and replaced it with Jesus. So that there was nothing left for their opponents to take. Because they can't take away Jesus. As Luther's hymn says again, Let goods 
and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Or Paul says a few verses later, I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die, that's more of Christ. That's gain. You cannot confine the gospel. The world tries. The very culture of New England almost feels like a silent attempt at confinement. So, the secularism that tells you that you should keep your faith to yourself. The pluralism that tells you that all faiths are really the same anyway. And so the subject is shut down before it's even brought up. The world will try to put a lid on the gospel And it doesn't mind playing dirty to do it. So when that happens to us, whether it's something as minor as being blown off by a a, in a conversation with a stranger, or something as life uh, life shattering as being fired from your job because of your faith, what will be our response? What will be our response? To run hide, to slink back in fear and self-protection, to attack in self-promotion, or to joyfully and humbly continue bearing witness to Christ, knowing that Jesus is our satisfaction and that God is at work in every circumstance through our proclamation of Jesus to advance the cause of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. And for that reason, we can rejoice. Now, confinement from without is only one way that Paul appeared to be losing, though. The other way was through competition within, which Paul now addresses in verses 15 to the first part of verse 18. So as Paul said in verse 14... Most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. But then he goes on to clarify that some of these brothers and sisters preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Sometimes the opposition we face in our partnership for the gospel comes from the world. Sometimes, sadly, it comes in the form of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are using the gospel as a means of personal advancement. What Paul calls selfish ambition. So they're making a play for position or for power, drawing attention to themselves and their ministries, their glory, even if it means taking advantage of others in their weakness. Now, this is not 
the, this is not false teachers or people who are teaching a distorted gospel, a different Jesus or a different way to know God. If that's what was going on, we would see the kind of reaction that we see from Paul in Galatians 1. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. But Paul has no nice words to say when that happens. This is different. Rather, these are genuine brothers and sisters who preach the true gospel of Jesus, but who have turned gospel ministry into a competition. Now, it was not true for everyone that was preaching. Everyone that was talking, and by preaching, we should clarify, that doesn't mean everybody's grabbing a pulpit out front and stepping up. That's proclaiming the message of Jesus in conversations, you know, in, in the, the daily practices of life. Telling people the gospel. That's what Paul means here. And some of them were doing that from goodwill. They were motivated by love for Paul and by a knowledge that his imprisonment was for the sake of defending the gospel of Jesus. They knew that what Paul, do, Paul was doing was life and death. They knew this was not a game. They knew that Paul knew that and that he was happy and willing to lay his life down for Jesus should it come to that. So when they spoke to others of Christ, they did so with much love and affection for Paul and were motivated ultimately by their satisfaction in Jesus, by their desire and enthrallment with Jesus. And yet there were others who buying into the idea that opposition means losing, had decided to seize on Paul's imprisonment as their chance to make a play for greater authority, greater power, greater position. They wanted to win. They wanted to win. But their opponent wasn't the world. It was Paul. They had turned partnership in the gospel into a game competition. Paul describes their motives with words like envy in verse 15. Rivalry or selfish ambition, verses 15 and 17. False or pretentious in verse 18. The kind of motives that place self above everything else. As one commentator says, these preachers were petty territorial, calculating, and focused on self-promotion. That was their game. Now, this would be inconceivable if it weren't so common, even today. I mean, that kind of attitude is so contrary to the very message that's being proclaimed that it's hard to imagine anyone doing this and then thinking that they're a Christian or a minister of the gospel. Their heart betrays the message. And yet, it's not so far from what we find in the church today. Whether it's the church at large, whether it's our own church, whether it's my own heart. From the petty competition we might have between ministries in the church, you know, for people or laborers or funding, you know, to the broader competition we might have with other gospel-preaching churches around us, to the growing celebrity-driven culture of North American evangelicalism. 
The temptation to turn gospel ministry into a platform for self-promotion is everywhere. It's everywhere. And it happens at every level of ministry. It's not just preachers, though preachers do struggle with this. It's not just preachers. From the pulpit to the Bible study leader to the musician or director to the small group leader to the volunteer to the elder or the deacon, the temptation is everywhere. How often, when you share an idea from the Bible, do you feel the need to attach some famous pastor or author's name to the idea? Oh, this is exactly what so-and-so said in this book. How often do you have to throw that out there? How often do we wish that it was our name we would hear people discussing? You know know what so-and-so said. How often in our zeal to see Jesus advanced in and through our congregation do we subtly point out flaws in other local churches in order to get people to like us more? We look with jealousy and envy at some other church's marketing. We compare our ministry models or programs. We draw attention to what makes us distinct, i.e., better than other churches. Why? Because we don't want to lose. We don't want to lose. We want to win. We love self too much. So we go around promoting self, vindicating self, setting the record straight for others if we feel someone's encroaching on our territory, using the gospel as a means of personal gain. This is not okay. This is not okay. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of someone doing that, trying to exploit your ministry for the sake of their own, then you know the pain that Paul is bearing. The feeling of being misunderstood, misrepresented, taken advantage of, being dismissed. And you know the temptation there is to return evil with evil, or envy with envy, to want to see the tables turned, where our name is now promoted and theirs is the one drug through the mud. We want to expose their selfish ambition, their false motives, and let the whole world know we were in the right. We want to win the competition. And now all of a sudden, we're just as guilty for playing the game. Treating our service for God like a competition among brothers and sisters in the family is sin. No matter what shape that service takes. And Paul will speak against that kind of selfish ambition very directly in chapter 2. But notice how he responds now. And this is the real shocker in the passage. Not that this kind of thing happens, but how Paul responds to it when it does. Even though what has happened to him is wrong, and the motives with which people are preaching the gospel are wrong, look at Paul's reaction in verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing 
is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. That goes against everything in our hearts. Contrary to what we want to do when we're losing, fight back, Paul rejoices. Why? Because whether they mean it from their heart or not, the gospel's being preached. More people are hearing Christ. The word is going forth, even if from unworthy vessels. And there's an important point to remember here. God blesses his word, either through the servant or in spite of the servant. God blesses his word, either through the servant or in spite of the servant. His word, when it's preached faithfully, goes forth with power, even when his servants don't really believe it or obey it secretly. I think of one of my mentors from high school, shortly after I had become a Christian. That man had come to faith in Jesus through the preaching of Jim Baker on television. The same Jim Baker who spent several years in prison for mail fraud and wire fraud and conspiracy. His motives were at that point found to be dreadfully false, bent on selfish ambition. But God blessed his word. People came to faith. So how will we respond when we find ourselves all of a sudden caught up in someone's competition for the advancement of their particular ministry? How will we respond if the Lord cuts through our hearts to show us that we're the ones who've turned it into a competition? Now, this is not about dismissing someone's sin as less than sinful, you know, overlooking their, their motives. It's not what this is. Sin is sinful, and it needs to be dealt with. And Paul will deal with it in chapter 2. This is about the attitude of our hearts and the object of our hope. If our hope is in self, self-protection, self-promotion, then this kind of competition threatens to undo us. If our hope is in Jesus, and our joy is in Jesus, and the advance of his gospel, whether through us or in spite of us, then our hearts will be grieved and deeply saddened when we see and feel this kind of behavior. But they'll not be undone. Because, as Don Carson puts it, our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and the splendor of the gospel. If our joy and satisfaction are in Jesus and not in self, then whether through false motives or true, Christ and his gospel are preached, and we are free to rejoice. We're free to rejoice. There's an ironic joy in gospel partnership, one that makes us leave room 
for suffering and losing in our lives. Whether at the hands of the world or, sadly, at the hands of our own family. It's an ironic joy that is empowered by Jesus, whose grace is sufficient to forgive us when we do turn ministry into a competition. His grace is sufficient to forgive us from that, to change us. It's a, an ironic joy that follows the pattern of Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited for selfish gain, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient to death on a cross. And because of his suffering, not in spite of it, but through it and because of it, Philippians 2.9 God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Suffering. Being opposed. Suffering for the gospel is not losing. Rather, God is at work through our proclamation of Jesus in all circumstances to make much of Christ in us and through us. Let's pray. Lord, many of our hearts are heavy as we think about the pain of being opposed and the shame of doing some of the opposing. We ask for your comfort. We ask for your forgiveness, your mercy. We ask that you would help us Lay aside self, crucify it, put it to death, and see only Jesus as our motivation, as our hope, as our joy, as our identity. Lord, no one, nothing can stop Jesus or take him away. Help us to put all our hope in Christ and to rejoice at what you're doing in and through broken vessels who are unworthy to be servants, but somehow by your grace are being cleaned up, put back together, and used, even though we're not perfect, for the great cause of your gospel and your glory. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name.